You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 90, The Battle of the Cedars. In the months following the failure of General Montgomery and General Arnold to take Quebec, the Northern Army in Canada got little attention. The focus really remained on Boston. After the British evacuation of Boston in March, members of Congress and military leadership continued to bicker, resulting in weeks of indecision about how to send a new leader to Canada. Washington finally got Congress's approval to send a new leader to the Northern Army, and that leader was General John Thomas from Massachusetts. Now in his early 50s, Thomas had military experience going back to both King George's War as well as the French and Indian War. He had played a leading role in the British capture of Montreal from the French in 1760. He was an early patriot and part of the militia army that besieged Boston. The Massachusetts Provincial Congress made him a lieutenant general just below Artemis Ward. So when the Continental Army formed in June 1775, Thomas received a commission as a brigadier general. Now He almost didn't take it as he considered it a demotion, but Congress did not want to have two major generals from Massachusetts. General Washington finally convinced him to take the job and sweetened the deal by making him the most senior brigadier general. Thomas served as field commander of the army on Dorchester Heights, the occupation of which finally convinced the British to evacuate Boston. Following that success, Congress finally promoted Thomas to major general and decided to give him his first independent command, taking charge of the Continental Army in Canada. At the time he got his command, Congress told Thomas that his command in Canada would be over 4,000 men. When he finally arrived in late April, though, he found that he had nothing close to those numbers. Although the Continentals had transferred more soldiers to Canada during the winter, large numbers of them had died of smallpox. Many more were still sick with smallpox or other diseases and unfit for duty. So Thomas found that his total force would be less than 2,000 men, and only about half of those were fit for duty. Even worse, many of the enlistments ended in April, and the men had no interest in remaining under any terms. Some enlistments had already ended, but officers had refused to release the men, making morale even worse. Thomas also walked into a situation where most of the Continental officers were fighting among themselves. The soldiers did not have sufficient food or clothing, the locals were becoming increasingly hostile to the Continentals, and the British would probably be sending relief fleets to arrive in the next few weeks. Thomas, however, was a capable general, and not one to back down from a challenge. He set to work reorganizing his army. 
one of the first things he did was transfer General Wooster back to Montreal. Apparently, Thomas did not have a good opinion of Wooster either. Thomas was also effective because he was willing to mix with the soldiers and share their burden, understand what the men were going through. He mixed with the soldiers so much that within weeks of his arrival, he contracted smallpox, which sadly would kill him by June. But in early May, Thomas still hoped to pull off a stunt that would let him break the siege of Quebec before the enemy relief fleet could arrive. On the night of May 3rd, sentries in Quebec saw the first relief ship approaching the city. The British had arranged a secret signal and countersignal to make sure they could identify the fleets. The defenders in Quebec hoisted their flag and fired five cannon to indicate they were still in control of the city. But the ship never gave the countersignal. With no signal, the defenders began firing on the ship, only to see a small crew abandon ship and row away in a small boat. It turns out that Thomas, taking Arnold's advice, had attempted to use the ship as a fire ship. The plan was to get as close to the city as possible, set it on fire, and hope that the burning ship would set the city of Quebec on fire. But the defenders did not let the boat get close enough. It floated downstream and burned down to the waterline, doing no damage to anything else. Two days later, on May 5th, the first real relief fleet would arrive and finally break the siege of Quebec. Upon the ship's arrival, General Carleton finally took 900 Quebec defenders outside the city walls and dared the Patriots to battle on open field. The few hundred Continentals still around Quebec fled without even attempting to mount a token challenge. They abandoned the artillery placements that Arnold had constructed in the months prior and all moved upriver. A few days later, General Thomas held a council of war with his officers. Thomas still favored taking a stand at Deschambeau, a city a few miles upriver from Quebec. At this point, the Patriots were still not sure how large the British relief fleet would be. Most of the fleet had not yet arrived. General Wooster also favored taking a stand. But almost all the other officers in attendance voted to retreat further up the river to Sorel, where the St. Lawrence River met with the Richelieu River. That was the Patriot line of retreat back to Lake Champlain if the British attacked in force. Thomas stayed at Deschambeau in case the promised artillery arrived soon. He could make a stand there and at least command a holding action to delay any British assault. Meanwhile, General Arnold, back in Montreal, wanted to get closer to the front and stop what he saw as a precipitous retreat. He moved to Sorrel, where most of the Patriots from Quebec were going. The only good news for the Patriots at this time was that General William Thompson, newly appointed brigadier general, arrived in Canada with 2,000 continental reinforcements. So the army now had a much larger force to work with, but it also had no food for them nor much ammunition. Even worse, smallpox quickly began to ravage the ranks of the reinforcements, just as it had the men already serving in theater. Now Arnold was hedging his bets at this point while he was trying to move as many forces as possible forward to confront an expected military advance from the British, he maintained posts further south to make sure the army had an open line of retreat should rumors of an overwhelming number of British reinforcements prove accurate. 
With Arnold and Sorrell, Colonel Moses Hazen commanded back in Montreal. Upon hearing rumors that British garrisons further west had mobilized an attack force of Indians and French volunteers, Hazen dispatched Colonel Timothy Bettle and 400 soldiers to build a stockade at the Cedars. The Cedars was located about 30 miles upriver and to the west of Montreal. This would provide a defense against any surprise attack coming from further up the river that was headed toward Montreal. Bedell's regiment began work on a stockade, but Bedell himself did not stay on site. Instead, he left his second-in-command, Colonel Isaac Butterfield, in command, while Bettle left to meet with the local Kahnawaga Indian tribe. He wanted to make sure this local tribe would not cooperate with the British in any attack. Meanwhile, the rumors of an attack force proved true. A French-Canadian named Claude de Lorimier, who served as British Indian agent, left Montreal to meet with the Iroquois at Fort Oswagachi, a small outpost in western New York still occupied by a small British regular garrison. Lorimier organized about 200 Iroquois, along with about 40 regulars and maybe 10 French Canadians, to attack the Patriot forces at Montreal. British Captain George Forster commanded the small brigade. On May 15th, Colonel Bedell received word that there was in fact a British-led Indian force headed to attack his regiment at the Cedars. Rather than return to his regiment and take command, or even bother to warn them, Bedell ran straight to Montreal to inform the command and ask for reinforcements. Now, whether this was outright cowardice or maybe an error in judgment, that would be debated later. For now, Bedell's troops would have to face the enemy without their leader. Bedell reported that 150 regulars and 500 Indians were getting ready to attack the force at the Cedars. Now, in fact, as I already said, the total force was only about 250 men, and only about 40 of those were British regulars. Officials in Montreal argued over sending a relief force. Apparently, two congressional delegates still in Montreal tried to issue orders. This led to a fight over authority with the officers in command. As a result, no relief force left for two days, when finally Major Henry Sherburne took 140 Continental soldiers to support the garrison at the Cedars. Colonel Bedell started off with the relief column, but then decided he was too sick to march and returned to Montreal. On May 18th, the day after Sherburne's relief force left Montreal, the regulars and Iroquois surrounded the stockade at the Cedars. Now, the defenders actually outnumbered the attackers and also had two small field cannon to defend their position. The men had sufficient food and supplies to defend themselves for days. The British commander, Captain Forrester, decided to bluff, implying that he had a much larger force he called on the force inside the stockade to surrender immediately or suffer the full ravages of attacking Indians. Almost immediately, Colonel Butterfield seemed ready to surrender, but only if the defenders could leave with their arms. Forster would not agree to the terms and began his attack on the stockade. Over the course of the day and night, the defenders easily held their position 
with only one man suffering a minor shoulder wound. By the next morning, though, Colonel Butterfield really wanted to surrender. His junior officers thought this was just crazy and debated mutiny to put a more capable officer in command of the defense. But before they could do so, Butterfield called for surrender, apparently unnerved at the prospect of being tortured and murdered by Indians. Forster's force took the entire garrison prisoner, captured all of their arms, ammunition, food, and supplies. As the men marched out of the stockade, the Indians stripped them of all their valuables, went through their pockets, and took their personal possessions as prizes of war. Now, while this was all happening, Sherburne's relief column, which had dwindled from about 140 to 100 men due to illness and posting guards to cover a potential retreat and guard supplies, approached the Cedars on May 19th. Upon hearing the garrison had already surrendered, Sherburne pulled back across the river and waited until the next morning to approach. When the column did march, the Indians ambushed them on open ground. The battle raged for about an hour, leading to 28 Continentals killed and an unknown but apparently much smaller number of Indians killed or wounded. Sherburne surrendered unconditionally. Now, the Indians took this to mean that they could strip their captors of all their possessions, including their clothes. There were no regulars with the party, but Indian agent Lorimer was with them and had to go to great lengths to keep the Indians from just massacring all the prisoners. Later, some accused the Indians of tomahawking and scalping several prisoners, though whether this really happened is debatable. It, it may have, but it's also possible that the Indians just scalped some of the dead after the battle. Lorimer and the Indians marched the naked prisoners back to a church where the prisoners from the Cedars were being held. At this point, the Indians decided that it was unfair that the Cedars prisoners got to keep their clothes while the relief column did not. They proceeded to strip the rest of the prisoners of their clothes as well. The prisoners had to sleep on open fields with no food or clothing and were not even allowed fires or given any food. Arnold, who had been focusing on the British from Sorel, received word of the fall of the Cedars and of Sherburne's relief column. He feared that the British and Indian Brigade would soon descend upon Montreal and capture the city. So Arnold ran back to Montreal, where he grabbed every soldier he could find, a total of about 150 men. As he marched toward the Cedars, he collected more soldiers from various outposts, so that his force totaled around 450 by the time he got near the enemy. On the evening of May 24th, Arnold's cobbled-together regiment heard the drums of the enemy encampment. Arnold immediately called for a nighttime surprise raid that would scatter the enemy and recapture their comrades. But his men refused to go. They were not a single unit, but were rather a collection of small groups of soldiers from various places who had never fought together, and they did not want to fight Indians at night in open fields. Frustrated, Arnold waited until morning, only to find that Captain Forrester and his prisoners had retreated during the night. Now, Forrester was in a difficult situation. His original force of 250 men was falling apart as some of the Indians began to leave with their booty. He had nearly 500 prisoners and was facing Arnold's superior attacking force. 
Some intelligence reports that Forster had received said that Arnold had as many as 2,500 men. So Forster forced the prisoners to march through swamps and across streams. At least one drowned and two others were killed when they were unable to keep up. Arnold finally caught up with Forster, who was moving prisoners from an island to the opposite bank of the river. Arnold sent a demand that Forrester surrender his prisoners. Instead, Forrester sent a reply that if Arnold attacked, he would allow the Indians to massacre all the prisoners. Once Forrester departed the island, Arnold moved his forces there, recapturing only five prisoners who had been left behind. Forrester used two cannon he had captured at the Cedars to keep Arnold from attempting a landing on the far bank in the face of the enemy. Forster, though, realized he could not fight off Arnold for long and retain control of all of his prisoners. He reached a deal with the two captured commanders, Butterfield and Sherburne, to release all the prisoners on the promise that they would be exchanged for captured prisoners of equal rank. Arnold received the terms but refused them because the terms required American prisoners had to take an oath never to take up arms again while the returned British prisoners would be under no such restriction. Forrester removed the condition of the oath to get an agreement and released his prisoners. Now, the Indians kept ten of the prisoners to be adopted into their tribes. Later, the British ransomed and returned eight of the men. The other two apparently opted to remain living in the tribes that had adopted them. Forrester also took custody of four officers as hostages to ensure the Americans would release their prisoners as promised. Congress, however, decided the prisoner exchange was unacceptable. It refused to release any prisoners, even though the Americans had already been returned. They did this over the objections of Washington and other senior officers, who pointed out, correctly, that it would make future prisoner exchanges almost impossible, since one side wouldn't keep its word. But since it was much harder to replace captured British regulars than Continentals, refusing exchanges probably worked out better for the Patriots. Even so, it meant thousands of prisoners would suffer and die under miserable prison conditions. Eventually, the British did return the four officers that had been held hostage. I've not found out exactly what terms or circumstances led to their release, or exactly when that happened but they, like many other officers, felt betrayed by Congress's refusal to accept the terms for a negotiated prisoner exchange. Colonels Bedell and Butterfield both faced courts-martial for their behavior. Washington, who almost never said anything bad about a fellow officer, called their conduct base and cowardly. John Adams, who was never shy about criticizing anyone, called it the first stain upon American arms. Given combat conditions of the time, the courts-martial had to be put off for several months. After all, the British were still in the process of invading from Canada. For the moment, everyone had to fight, and the hearings would come later. In August, a court-martial found Bedell guilty of quitting his post when he ran back to Montreal rather than to his regiment when he heard of the enemy's approach. Bedell blamed his behavior on fuzzy thinking due to illness. He was suffering from a mild attack of smallpox after recently being inoculated. He claimed this affected his admittedly poor judgment. Even so, the court-martial ordered him dismissed from the army, though he was permitted to rejoin a little over a year later. 
a Butterfield who had surrendered the Cedars without much of a fight to an inferior force, faced a court-martial for cowardice. The court found him guilty and dismissed him from the army permanently. One other outcome of the incident was that Arnold, surprise, surprise, made a few more enemies. Before returning to Montreal, Arnold ordered Colonel John Philip de Haas to burn a local Indian village, possibly for its cooperation with the marauders. After Arnold left, de Haas decided not to burn the village, as it might provoke a new Indian uprising. When Arnold learned about the refusal to obey his direct order, he was outraged. De Haas would go on to become a general, but remained on Arnold's bad side for the remainder of the war. Colonel Moses Hazen had also served under Arnold during the attempted rescue of the Cedars garrison. Hazen had been among the officers who refused to back Arnold's attempts to attack the enemy aggressively. During the arguments, the two men exchanged insults and became lifelong enemies. Arnold, who had written several positive comments about Hazen up until this point, now believed the man was not fit for command. Although Hazen would also become a general, Arnold wanted nothing more to do with him, and apparently the feeling was mutual. The Battle of the Cedars, as it became known, was in fact another stain on the reputation of the Northern Army. It would not be the last defeat as the British pushed the Patriots out of Canada and reclaimed that territory for the king. But next week, I'm going to take a step back from all the battles raging around the continent and take a look at the state constitution movement that is easing the colonies into becoming independent states. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. I decided to add something new this week. In addition to recommending a book, I'm going to start recommending online resources as well. These can be other podcasts, blogs, websites, or whatever I think might be of interest. Now, you may recall that last week I put out an offer for people to pay for such mentions. No one has taken me up on that yet, and if they ever do, I will clearly tell you when content is sponsored. So this week, and I expect in most cases, my online recommendations, like my book recommendations, are based purely on what I think is a good resource for you to use. There is no sponsorship involved. So my recommendation this week is the Hub History Podcast. This is a great podcast about Boston history. 
Now, they were kind enough to give the American Revolution podcast a shout-out a few weeks ago, and that's probably what prompted me to add this segment to my podcast. But I've listened to the Hub History podcast for probably a year now, and I really do enjoy it. There is some crossover content as they discuss events in Boston during the Revolution, but they cover a much wider time frame, from the arrival of the Puritans through events well into the 20th century. The work is extremely well-researched and presented by a team of hosts, Jake Sconyers and Nikki Stewart. I very much enjoy listening to them, and I think you will too. If you want to check it out, their website is hubhistory.com. That's h-u-b-history.com. The podcast, of course, is available through iTunes or just about any other podcast source that you use. They publish weekly, and if you haven't followed them yet, then lucky you, there's a huge backlog of episodes for you to enjoy. I also got to meet Jake and Nikki at History Camp Boston a couple of weeks ago. I had a great time meeting with them and others who I had only known online. History Camp is an annual event where both professional and amateur historians from all walks of life can meet up and share their love of history. The one I went to is in Boston, and I think that's the original, but there are others around the country as well. In fact, I briefly discussed with the leaders of History Camp Boston the idea of having a History Camp Philadelphia. So if there is anyone in the Philadelphia area who might be interested in helping to put together such an event, let me know and we can talk about it. Okay, so this week we saw the Americans not at their best. They surrendered to an inferior force and then refused to comply with a prisoner swap agreement that allowed the prisoners to go free. The poor American performance is probably the reason that the Battle of the Cedars gets fairly little coverage by American historians. In fact, I've found no good book devoted to this event. Now, several books I've recommended in the past, uh, Hatch's Thrust for Canada and Anderson's Battle for the 14th Colony, give it some coverage as part of their overall story, uh, but there's nothing I've found that really just focuses on this one event. This week's book recommendation, though, is something that I mostly mentioned in passing this week. Uh, it's about a man named Moses Hazen. The book, Moses Hazen and the Canadian Refugees in the American Revolution, by Alan Everest, covers this Revolutionary War general from Canada. As I've said, if you're looking for more on the Battle of the Cedars, this book is not what you want. It only covers the battle in about two paragraphs. This is more about the entire military and political career of Moses Hazen. He was born in New England, moved to Canada, where he serves as an officer with the British regulars, but then throws in with the Americans, eventually serving as a Continental General. The book also covers the Canadians who join Hazen in the Patriot cause and their difficulties after the war. Of course, most soldiers could go home, the Canadian Patriots could not. Everest first published this book in 1976 under an NEH grant. It's pretty short at under 200 pages, not counting notes and index. Professor Everest of Plattsburgh University has published a few other history books, mostly about events in the area where he lived in upstate New York. He passed away in 1997. The book does not get into the level of detail that one would expect 
in a biography of some more famous people. However, I did find it to be an interesting read on a topic that does not get much coverage. I will also note that if you don't want to spend the 6 or $7 to buy a used copy of the book, you can download it for free, one chapter at a time, from jstore.org. The book is available under a Creative Commons license. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.